and it's starting on verse 1. Jonah flees the presence of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on those whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quieten down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out on the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, has done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of fish three days and three nights. If you can catch a hold of that reading, um, you'll find that helpful, because I'll keep um, kind of turning you back to that. If you haven't yet got one of the sheets, um, hopefully there's still a few at the back, and you can... You can feel free to get up and get one of those if you, if you need to. I wonder whether when you watch a movie, you sort of imagine yourself as the hero or the villain. I wonder whether you imagine yourself as Batman or you imagine what it might be like to be the Joker, as Heath Ledger. Whether you see yourself as plucky Frodo or maybe you imagine yourself as Smeagol. Probably not. 
probably wouldn't want to look like him, that's for sure. Whether you see yourself as Eve or Villanelle, who's just so much cooler, or whether you see yourself as Luke or Darth Vader, Jonah would have imagined that he was the hero in this story. And as a prophet, he usually sort of would be cast in that kind of a role. Most books of prophecy in the Old Testament have the prophets as a sort of hero, as someone who massively sacrifices their own comfort and their own life in order to go and give a message that often people don't want to hear and don't thank them uh, for them having shared. It's not an easy life, and it's often almost a heroic thing. But it turns out in this story, Jonah is no hero. The hero of the book of Jonah is God. God who saves wicked enemies and rebellious prophets. And it's good news. Because as it turns out, as the story unfolds, we might be a bit more like Jonah than we would like to admit. We might want to imagine ourselves as the hero, but we might find that we're a bit of a villain too. I want to show you four things just in this story this morning then. Firstly, Jonah running, Jonah exposed, a surprising fruit, and then God pursuing. Jonah runs. Look at those first six verses there with me. That's what we'll look at together it begins right off with this sense of immediacy doesn't it now the word of the lord came to jonah but that begs an important question doesn't it when is now when are we talking about how do we put this in a sort of context and place we don't know when jonah was exactly written rather unhelpfully um, mainly because we're not sure who the author is either Uh, Some commentators believe it cannot possibly be Jonah because it presents him so badly. But we'll think more about that in coming weeks because I think there's another answer to that. But it's certainly based in Jonah's lifetime. Jonah comes after the prophet Elijah and is a young contemporary of Elisha. That places him roughly between 780 and 755 B.C., history at this time so here's a couple of bullet points that are significant the kingdom of Israel is split in two at this point you have Israel in the north with Samaria as its capital and then Judah in the south uh, Judea in the south where Jerusalem is its capital at this point as well there are two temples there's the temple in Jerusalem But there's also an unsanctioned temple in the north in Samaria because they decide they don't want to have to go down to the south to travel to their temple and do things their way. They want their own expression of their faith. The north had lost territory previously to the Assyrian Empire to the north and often faced the fear of further invasion. But in the time in which Jonah lives... King Jeroboam II, the king, had led Israel to unprecedented economic prosperity, to an expansion of their territory, but also to serious social inequalities, a false sense of security, and false worship in their false temple. Now, in this context, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. 
Jonah was a prophet. The word of God coming isn't the surprise here, but there is a surprise. The surprise is the word that Jonah is given. Lisa's just to ask quickly, who is Jonah? You can read a little bit, at least, about Jonah from 2 Kings uh, chapter 14. Jonah was one of the minor prophets, successor to Elijah, as I say, and a younger contemporary of Elisha. He's born in a place called Gath Hefer. Hopefully you might see that, actually, on, on uh, this map, uh, which, which I've got here. It's, um, it's very small. In fact, I'm not sure they've put it on there. It's, it's just a bit north of Nazareth, so right north in the country. In the sticks, in the middle of nowhere, in Galilee, it's a nowhere town. And so, this is important, southern Israelites would have looked down on Jonah. They would have seen Jonah as part of a people who are liberal, who are pagan, and who are uncultured. And, you know, a lot of you Scottish, um, so you might know a thing or two about noisy neighbours in the south uh, who arguably sometimes perhaps look down on other people and might suggest that, uh, you know, you guys are sort of a little bit behind uh, the times of the south. So it's, it's something of that kind of a flavour that's going on. Jonah's other assignment that we hear him being given is to go to King Jeroboam II, the very successful but not very godly king, predicting Israel's resurgence and liberation from the Assyrians. Read of that in 2 Kings 14. Now, imagine Jonah's been the one to go and say to King Jeroboam, you're going to lead the people to overcome Assyria. And now Jonah's being sent out to the Assyrians to give a message that he suspects, and we know this from later, will wind up in the Assyrians being rescued. The same guy, the one who's been there at the head of being able to give this great prophecy of Israel's resurgence, now has to maybe prophesy, which will lead to the Assyrians being redeemed. Arise, go to Nineveh, he's told, that great city, and call against it, for their evil has come up before me. And you'll see definitely there on that map uh, where Nineveh is, just to get a sort of sense. So it's not all that far away for Jonah to go to, but it is outside of his homeland. Nineveh was in northern Mesopotamia on the east bank of the Tigris River. Uh, the modern city of Mosul is, is uh, very nearby, uh, opposite it. It wasn't the capital of Assyria, but it was a major city. It had royal palaces, and the king would sometimes uh, stay there on occasions. Prophets were sometimes given messages like this to foreign powers. But the thing that is different for Jonah here from God is that the prophet didn't usually have to go out there to give it. He didn't usually have to be on away territory in order to give that message. And so he's being sent to their enemies being asked to bring a message that might lead to their renewal. And so just imagine seeing Jonah, who prophesied of Israel's resurgence, come and do this. Would he maybe have looked a bit like a traitor? Typical northern sellout. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, we're told again at the end of that verse, away from the presence of the Lord. Called to go to Nineveh, he goes in the opposite 
direction. You can see here on this map, they've put it in southern Spain. In fact, actually, there's, there's potentially three sites we think it could be, either southern Spain um, or uh, Carthage, northern Africa, or possibly uh, Sardinia, uh, just off the coast of Italy. But we're not 100% sure. But it's a region that we hear of in the rest of the Bible of being rich in uh, metals and supplying the temple uh, with metals to, to Solomon and supplying the Phoenician Empire with uh, metals too and making much money. And here's the interesting thing about Jonah. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. But Jonah doesn't mind being in a pagan city. Because this place was no better. Same values. Same life. He doesn't mind going to a pagan city. As long as it's not Assyria. And you need to know that about Jonah. That there's a very specific personal, national prejudice. I'll go anywhere but Assyria. Don't send me there. Jonah, the prophet, is trying to flee God's presence as if he can. Jonah's limited God to only being present in Israel. So here we see, even already, God is a global God. Secondly, God comes for the nations. He cares for them. And he comes after them. That God sends his messengers to the nations. And that fourthly, he means to save the nations. See, the prophet... Jonah here, would do God's work as long as it fits his understanding, his values, his tastes, what he thinks is right. Let's pause and just ask whether we're ever guilty of that ourselves. Do we ever limit God to only really doing what we think is right, what we think should happen, just like Jonah And then look at what happens to him here, verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. God sends a storm to disrupt Jonah's rebellion. I don't think to judge him necessarily, but to disrupt his plans. And then look how bad this storm is, verse 5. The mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God. These are people who are used to being in bad conditions. Have you ever watched, uh, um, there's a program on the Discovery Channel, isn't there, where you have all these sort of fishermen in all these extreme sort of conditions and things. These are guys who are used to bad storms. So this is an incredibly bad storm for them to be afraid. This is something they've not even quite seen before. And so they cry out to whatever gods they can think to name. And they hauled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. They're desperate, crying to any and every god that they can, but also doing what they can. There's a frantic sort of nature to this, isn't there? But Jonah, here's the contrast, had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Jonah didn't listen to God's word. He didn't like it. But Jonah also doesn't care for the welfare of the sailors. He's not bothered. I wonder if you ever watch those extreme survival shows. Uh, They seem to sort of divide people in two. You know, you get some who watch and seem to think, oh yeah, I, I could probably do that. And I think, well, I'm not sure I would like to 
watch, you try. Uh, for me, whenever I would watch it and I would see sort of Bear Grylls sleeping, it's a bit pixelated. Uh, this is one episode where he slept inside the innards of a camel um, to keep warm. Or you see him distilling his urine through a snake skin uh, to drink. Or just eating really bizarre things. My reaction used to be, you know what? I think I'd just rather die quietly. <laughs> I think I'd rather just sit under a tree, be with my thoughts for a little bit, and slip on out. And I think that's definitely what's going on in Jonah's heart here. He goes down to the inner part of the ship and falls asleep. What do you mean, you sleeper? They say to him, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish and I think there's an interesting thing our storyteller is doing here. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us. And I think the subtext is, Jonah has not. You might be okay with us dying as collateral damage because of your rebellion to God. But call out to your God because your God might not be okay with that. Your God might be more gracious than you, Jonah. Call out to your God. Maybe he will listen. Maybe he will care about our plight. And he will do something where you just wanted to sleep down here and watch as the world burnt, maybe your God will care for us more than you do. Jonah's rebellion endangered these sailors. It showed a complete thoughtlessness to them. And yet, he still doesn't call out to his God to save them all. Why? Jonah would prefer to drown than repent. We know that's his mindset from the last chapter. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Yes, I do. Enough to die. Kill me now. Jonah runs because he hears from God and doesn't like it. I wonder if you can identify with him. I wonder if he's ever said something to you that you didn't like to hear. Jonah runs. But then secondly, he's exposed. Look at verse 7. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. They cast lots, and it's not entirely superstitious on the part of these sailors. In fact, we see it sometimes in the Old Testament. Uh, we see people making big decisions, like land allocation by casting lots. It's not so much about gambling as it is leaving a decision up to God, that clearly you haven't actually made that decision. Proverbs 18, verse 18 says, the cast lot puts an end to strife and decides between mighty ones. And there's this expectation that God worked and spoke and decided through it. Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. They don't, I don't think, quite have all of that in their minds, but they just think, let's do something that we haven't actually determined ourselves to see whose fault this is. In their own way, they're asking God to bring revelation to them. And yet, it doesn't take long for people to want to apportion blame, does it? Let's find out whose fault this is. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. He's exposed. So they ask him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Actually, the lot is cast on him, but notice how they're giving him a chance to explain himself. Tell us on whose account this has come upon us. I'm a Hebrew, he says, verse 9. 
And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. (laughs) I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. So he thinks. So he says. Turns out there's a very big difference between what Jonah thinks he believes and what he really believes. Sometimes it's what we do that shows what we really believe. Sometimes we just don't like to admit that because the results are embarrassing. Jonah thinks he fears the Lord. He doesn't fear the Lord at all. Either he doesn't realize or he just doesn't care that he's now as well in a missionary encounter. Here he is amongst this crowd who know nothing of God. And here he has this opportunity even in his failing that's brought this situation upon them, to share the message of God, and he doesn't. He's giving a terrible representation of following God, isn't he? He says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. And then notice verse 10 here. Again, our narrator, our storyteller, is making an interesting contrast here. He says he's a Hebrew and fears the Lord. He doesn't. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And said to him, what is this that you have done? Notice, God hasn't spoken yet. But Jonah's rebuked through the sailors. God hasn't had to speak. These supposedly godless sailors are speaking for him. What is this that you have done? There's a genuine fear of God from the sailors here. Why on earth, Jonah, would you rebel against the God of the seas what are you thinking you say you fear the god of the seas and you run to a ship while Jonah's fighting against the word and the work of God God is at work in the sailors who don't know this God at all Jonah has been exposed he's far from a hero in fact it turns out he's the bad guy He runs, he's exposed. But now we see the surprising fruit. Look at verses 11 to 16 here. They say to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. I suspect the sailors sensed where things were heading. Don't you? But they ask because they feel guilty. They're looking for a way out of this. Jonah, if you can give us some sort of sensible alternative here, let's give it a go. But I think they sense what direction it's headed. Stop there for a moment to notice the sailors have cared more for Jonah, who endangered their lives, than Jonah ever did for them. It's remarkable. Pick me up, Jonah says, and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. At least now, for once, Jonah is being honest, at least. He offers them a way out here. And yet, interestingly, notice what Jonah's solution is. Because it's a solution where Jonah still doesn't have to go to Nineveh at the end of it. Or chuck me in the sea, and that will deal with it. Hmm. Interesting, too, that Jonah still does not even attempt to pray to God that he would either, A, stop the storm, Or B, they could make it safe back to Joppa. 
so that he could get back to Nineveh. That's not in Jonah's mind. It's chuck me in the sea. Storm will go quiet for you. I won't have to go to Nineveh. And then look at the reaction of these faithful men. The men rode hard to where they literally dug in. They dug deep to try to get back to dry land. They try to find a way where they don't have to chuck him overboard. But they couldn't. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It's a rare occasion of an admirable resistance to God. Do you get what I mean? The, the, the way that this is going is that Jonah's going to have to be chucked in the sea. And they're resisting that, which ordinarily you think would be a bad thing. But it's a noble thing. Because in the head they're thinking, we don't want to see him die. We, we chuck him in, this is going one way. He's, he, he's not getting out of this alive. There's a sort of admirable way in which they're resisting God here. They're trying their best to avoid leaving Jonah to an inevitable death, to no avail. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. <laughs> they, the sailors, not Jonah. The sailors call out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. Don't underestimate people's ability to hear to respond to God's word in faith. Here, the sailors are responding better than Jonah. They're calling out to God. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. The sailors actually have a higher view of God than Jonah the prophet in this one encounter. While Jonah thought God was so small he could escape his presence. All he would have to do is get on a boat and travel to southern Spain or northern Africa or off the coast of Italy, wherever it is, the western Mediterranean. The sailors know this event, this storm, doesn't happen like this unless God is in charge. And the only way that this storm ends is that this God is appeased. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In fear and awe, they worship God and commit themselves to him. It's a longhand way of saying they're converted. They come to faith. They not only have this fear in God, they're now making a sacrifice, they're now offering worship to him and making vows of commitment to him to follow him. We've seen conversions and Jonah hasn't spoken yet. At least he's not spoken the gospel to them in any way, shape or form. His witness is not in any way, shape or form being good. In fact, it's pretty hard to defend at all. And yet, these sailors have come to faith tells us a few simple things. Don't tame God. Don't try to domesticate him. Don't try to sand off all the rough edges. All these elements here. Fear and awe leads these men to faith. Actually being in a place of extreme discomfort in the presence of God leads them to faith. We can sometimes be too concerned to make God too comfortable in a way that I don't think he is so concerned with. God is sometimes wild. 
And sometimes people need to feel that sense of awe and discomfort in his presence. But look, God works out his plans even when we disobey his commands. Look at that hope. But thirdly, God's ability to save isn't limited by our performance and ability. And fourthly, in God's grace, he can work through very bad messengers and their bad moments. There's a surprising fruit in this story. But then lastly, we see God pursuing. Just turn your eyes to that closing verse there. And the Lord appointed, or it could be translated prepared, a great fish to swallow up Jonah. You know, as bad as the prophet is, God doesn't leave the prophet Jonah to his self-destruction. God comes after Jonah. The commentators don't really know very often what to do with Jonah. It's quite disillusioning reading uh, some of the writing about this. Here's a comment from one of the better ones, Douglas Stewart, but still, I think, lacking. He says... Uh, On one level, the message of Jonah may be boiled down to a warning to the hearer or the reader, don't be like Jonah. Continues a little bit later. But the point of the story goes somewhat beyond teaching the audience to love their enemies. It also places great emphasis on the character and power of God. A little bit better than some of the others, but still lacking. The point of Jonah is entirely about God because we are Jonah already. We might not like to see it. We might not like to admit it. But we already are in so many ways. And so the point is entirely about what God does in and through Jonah and those around him. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He says, we think we do well to be angry with the rebellious. And we might hear of Jonah here and be angry at him and think, oh, what an idiot. Wouldn't we do better? And so we prove ourselves, he says, to be more like Jonah than Jesus. The point isn't don't be like Jonah, although don't. It's here's the hope for when you are like Jonah. A gracious God who works in spite and through even our sin. God is gracious to bad servants like Jonah and to Nineveh. God doesn't drop his plan to save them just because Jonah didn't like it. He sticks with it. He appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And so God saves Jonah here. And we'll hear some of Jonah's reaction to that next week. He saves him, and yet the means isn't the most pleasant. It's not the most comfortable reality to live in. And sometimes that's the way of God's rescue for us when we lead ourselves into a chaos of our own design. He saves us, but the method is not the most comfortable. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And maybe this is the bit that's most memorable and most contested about Jonah, because it's completely supernatural, isn't it? So we might ask, how 
do the New Testament authors see this? And most importantly, how does Jesus see this? Well, thankfully, we know very clearly because Jesus told us. Matthew chapter 12. People are asking Jesus for a sign to prove himself. He's already done, you know, immeasurable, (laughs) miraculous, supernatural things. But nonetheless, they ask for another sign. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Come back to think it's a bit of a spoiler as to what will happen later on. But his three simple things to note of how Jesus sees this story. He sees Jonah as a historical character, not a parable. Some of the commentators believe this is a parable. One of the interesting things about Jesus when he, and he's the primary person who teaches three parables never have actual people in them. It's, it's, it's always a constructed story. It's an imaginary thing. Jonah is a historical character. He actually existed out with this story and Jesus views him that way too. Secondly, Nineveh's repentance was a historical event. Jesus treats it that that really happened. If this is only a parable, then why on earth does Jesus really think it really did and that the people of Nineveh will come back and will judge those here, the Pharisees, who are not willing to believe in Jesus? He believes they're real people and it was a real redemption and revival. And thirdly, he sees himself in light of Jonah. That is, he sees the story of Jonah as being a way to partly make sense of his ministry. Jesus treats Jonah as a historic event. It's not a poem, not a parable, not an allegory, but an event through which his own ministry is understood. And so Jonah, the book, challenges Israel to enlarge their view of God, of his grace, and consider that God is globally and not nationally concerned. See, Jonah's sin was bad, but no sin overcomes God's grace. God doesn't abandon his servants, even if they try to abandon him. Jonah ran, but God pursued God doesn't allow his pursuit of the Ninevites to be derailed by Jonah's disobedience. This amazing story, as we close this morning, is all about the depths of the grace of God towards a servant who doesn't deserve or show grace himself, and for a people who don't deserve and haven't sought and haven't shown grace either the former oppressors of the people of God the Assyrians who will later on go on to oppress them again as well by the way but the story most of all foreshadows Jesus a greater Jonah a better missionary of God in that section from Matthew 12 Jesus says behold something greater than Jonah is here Jesus and Jonah are both called as missionaries. Jonah tries his best not to go. 
Jesus obeys his father's call, giving up the privileges of heaven for a time, coming and living amongst humanity. Jonah takes the first chance to rebel and run to Tarshish. Jesus, when tempted by Satan to take an easier path, to take a path to short-term, quick-fix glory now, comfort above discomfort, his pleasure over ours, he refuses. He refuses to disobey his father's call. Jonah hates the people that he's called to help. Jesus loves the people he's called to help. He says, I'm the friend of sinners. People try to use that as a slur against him. He sees it as an honor. I'm the friend of sinners. I've come for the sick, not for the well. Jonah's storm is self-inflicted. Jesus' storms are totally undeserved. It's him absorbing and facing all of the chaos and the sin and disgrace of humanity upon himself and in his own life, though he'd never done anything wrong. Jonah risks everybody else's life with his rebellion. Jesus' faithfulness is in order to save everybody else. Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to repent because he can't forgive Jesus longs for us to repent because he's desperate to forgive. Those who are murdering him as they do it, he says, forgive them. A criminal stood next to him appealing, is let into paradise that day because he forgives. Jonah is upset that Nineveh isn't destroyed in the end. Jesus is upset because how many times he says that he looks over Jerusalem, I would have scooped you up. But you wouldn't. His greatest desire is that we not be destroyed, that he be destroyed in our place for us. Jonah's best answer to the sin, the chaos, the suffering of Nineveh, which is great, it goes up to God, which is why he acts and sends Jonah. His best answer is it should be raised to the ground. Jesus' best answer to the sin, the chaos, the suffering of humanity in the earth is to bring down a new heavenly city that peace and shalom be restored. Jonah is a hypocrite. He acts no better than those he judges so harshly, and he doesn't live up to his own claims. Jesus is always faithful and trustworthy. He always obeys the Father, and he never asks you to do something he didn't already do. Jonah is every one of us. But Jesus did all he did for us. The better Jonah has come, has died, to set us free. And the way the preacher to the Hebrews puts it, is that he went to the cross for the joy set before him. Not like Jonah trying to get out of it. He went with joy. Says he despised the shame. Any notion that somehow he was lowering himself or not doing himself justice by doing this, he despises. No, I did it in joy. And I did it because I wanted nothing more than to see people rescued, to see people live instead of die. Jonah points us to Jesus, the better Jonah. Let's pray and then we'll sing a closing song together.